0: Lone Star 187 is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. File 12, the Texas hitman.
1: Hello. Hey. So,
2: welcome to Lone Star 187.
1: We just want to say that as of today, hopefully by the time this podcast gets out, we'll be over a thousand downloads, but as of today, we're at 993. Thank, so. you. thank you. Thank you, thank to you to everyone. you out there,
2: you people out there that are listening.
1: So this case is called the Texas Hitman. Okay. Obviously, he's a hitman.
0: Get the fuck out of here.
1: <laughs> this is a crazy one, though. And so basically, we kind of picked apart the most infamous murders and separately researched them. So our first victim is Sam DeGelia Jr., he was born November the 6th, 1937, and he
2: was born in Hearn, Texas. Okay. Where's Hearn? It is a city in Robertson County uh, and has a population of 4,459. And it is in...
0: Well, negative one.
2: East Texas. It's East Texas. And there you go. So he
1: was born and he grew up in Hearn, Texas. He graduated from Hearn High School in 1956. He was active in all sports. And he came from a long family history of grain dealing. Grain. Grain. Okay. So he made a career out of that, and he also bought a cotton company in Bryan, Texas. He married young. He married Ginger Degelia. I think that's how you say it. Or is it Helia?
0: I don't
2: fucking know. <laughs> it's, Did you just say Helia?
0: Yeah, to hell with you.
2: The J <laughs> is the one that's huh, right?
0: Yeah, J's turn into H's, and X okay. turns into beers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so it's okay. Degelia, right? That's the way I would pronounce it. They had four children, three sons, Sammy, Jimmy, and David, and one daughter named Tammy. Sam had two sisters, Cindy and Linda, and he graduated from Texas A&M in 1960. So the day that starts this whirlwind is on July 6th of 1968. Sam DeGelia goes missing. He is in Hidalgo County, which I know is south. Mm-hmm. Near Mexico. His wife reports him missing. So it hits the newspaper that a Texas grain buyer has vanished in the lower Rio Grande Valley on Saturday, July the 6th. Him and his bookkeeper, Jimmy Horn, and Sam's wife, Ginger, and their children all left Hearn to go down to buy grain. And so they kind of made it a family vacation. So they go down there while the family's together. Sam gets a phone call that someone wants to buy grain. Mm -hmm. So he's going to go meet with this person. He goes to Luby's Cafeteria, which you know we love, in McAllen. His bookkeeper goes inside to Luby's to eat and says, you know, do you want to come in and join me? And Sam says, you know, I'm okay. I'm just going to wait out here for this grain buyer. Well, whenever Jimmy Horn comes back out, he notices that his car is still there, but Sam is not. So he just figures he's still out with him. So he peeked into the car and he saw that some of his stuff was there so he thought oh surely he'll be back for all that and Jimmy Horn left for the night. The next morning his wife Ginger reports him missing. She calls the police who sends out Texas Ranger Dawson and a private investigator from San Antonio and they start searching the area. They have an idea to send some people into Mexico since they're so close to the border they're concerned that maybe he got kidnapped yep. or, or cartel or something yep. has happened and now he's over the border. Mrs. DeGelia tells them you know, he usually always has 50 to $70 in cash and he has numerous credit cards with him. So possible he could have been robbed. They said that is possible. However, his car still had another billfold in it that had everything in it, his keys. So it didn't really make sense that he would just go meet with someone and not take that with him.
0: You know you're in the South when they say billfold. Yeah. <laughs> Wallet.
1: Dad always called it a billfold. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She called around to all the local hospitals and didn't have any information So the investigators and Texas Rangers continue to look through the car. They find his briefcase in there as well. So they asked Mr. Gellia, can you tell us the last time you saw him? What was his demeanor? She told them that the family had gone together for lunch. And then they went for a game of bowling. Then they returned back to the hotel where they swam in the pool. And while they were swimming, that's whenever Sam had received the phone call. And he got dressed and said, hey, I'm going to go meet this guy. I'll be back
2: later. Mm -hmm. That was the last time she saw him. He's a missing man. Deal some grain and disappeared well that's interesting because I also have someone that's missing my missing person is Alan Berg he was born in the 30s I didn't look that up I'm sorry he had an older brother David and a younger sister named Linda his parents separated and divorced when he was 10 when his parents split he stayed with his dad and his older brother and his sister went with his mom but that was his mom's choice which I thought was weird. His older brother said that he thinks his mom did that because of his dad's girlfriend. Like, he thought maybe if he took the son, the girlfriend wouldn't be interested anymore. Anyway, I thought it was weird. So the brothers reconnected when Alan moved to Houston when he was 16 years old after serving in the Navy. He was a co-owner with his father of Imperial Carpet. So they had a carpet business. Shut up. Um, he eventually... he he'd I
0: got a carpet business.
2: I know. I figured you did. <laughs> He was married twice before, but his third marriage was to Harriet. This was the love of his life. So he was locked and loaded on the marriage front. They had two children together and she's pregnant with his third. And his father said about him that he was the best salesman ever, bar none. So they have a lot of money. They own their own business, him and his dad. So he's a wealthy, well-dressed guy. So both
1: of our missing men own their own businesses and are wealthy.
2: Hmm. Wow. Interesting. Little carpet and grain. And cotton. And cotton. On May 28, 1968, Allen Berg disappeared from the Brass Jug Club, which was a posh pub in the southwest section of Houston. So, he walked out of the nightclub about 8.30, telling one of his friends, a wealthy attorney, Fergus Glenther, uh, that he was going to meet a girl, and when "Fergus, returned, Fergus. Did you say Fergus? I said Fergus. Glenther. Yes. 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 Like, what did he do to his mom? I thought in you the were going to say he's in your story oh, later. And now no. you're making fun of his name. Come on. Like in the womb <laughs> you name, name him maybe that. Maybe he's Scottish and he's named after a great great grandfather. I don't know. That's the name they gave him. Fergus Glenther. Fergalicious. So he told his friend that he was going to meet a girl and would return shortly. But hold on a second. Isn't he happily married? A love of his life. With three children. So he told him he was going to go meet this girl and he had come back was never seen again when alan didn't arrive home after midnight his wife became increasingly worried and finally at 5 a.m she called this attorney friend she called fungus i'm gonna call him fungus that's not very nice his name is fergus what do you think the attorney told her do you think he was honest about what her husband told him
1: i don't think so because she's yeah, pregnant
2: right he hesitated because he remembered shit he left with a girl so he said i last saw alan at 1 a.m on old market square he was in his car that's all he said So by 7.30, she still hasn't heard from him. So she called his dad. His dad calls Houston police and files a missing persons report. This policewoman, Rosemary Rowell, is filling out the police report, listing all the details, 5'4", 125 pounds, dark hair, wearing horn-rimmed glasses, wearing a green suit, wearing these cufflinks and a ring with his initials on it, all this stuff. He was last seen driving a 1966 yellow Fleetwood Cadillac. So while all this is happening in a neighboring... Fort Bend County, this deputy Sheriff Roy Schmidt was talking to a Sugarland rancher on the phone. The rancher had lost a number of calves to meat moonlighters. So, people show up on his property late at night stealing calves. So, he calls them meat moonlighters. Mm-hmm. They call it in South Texas, yo. I looked it up because I was like, I gotta know what this is. It's one of those Texas slangs for stealing calves. He called because he had seen lights of a car at the end of a street, at the dead end of a levee near a south pasture. So he asked the police officer, can you just go check it out? He drives out there and keeps driving on this white gravel road and sees a dark stain. Causes him to stop. He gets out and looks at it and immediately he can tell that it's blood. So he stepped to the edge of the levee and looked down, saw a bunch of pecan trees. At the end of the pecan trees there was a dumping ground. So he sees some tracks on the ground, look like Someone had been dragged, so he follows the tracks, and then he could see that someone attempted to dig a grave. So there's this empty, really shallow grave, but I guess it's shallow because the dirt was really, really hard clay. So they tried and were like, "Yeah, screw this. This is going to be too difficult."
0: Like I'll come home from working and digging all day, and Brittany's like, "What's wrong with your shoulders?" I was like, "I had to dig three inches."
2: Yeah, fucking Texas hard ass dirt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then he saw a cow track and saw more fresh blood and drag marks that indicated that the body had been pulled back to where he had seen the drag marks start. So like they drug the body down there, tried to dig, screw this, drug him back to the car.
1: How creepy that he finds all these miscellaneous the same day, and,
2: like, and he doesn't know about the missing person yet. He's just being called there because, remember, a rancher. Was, and he sees, like,
1: this whole storyline yeah, put can, together.
2: That's what they were saying, that's that this so guy creepy. had an eagle eye because he could tell everything that had happened. And obviously it hadn't been very long because the blood is still fresh. He can see everything that's going on. So he goes back and tells the sheriff hey look this is what I found so later that day some other officers go back to do a more thorough search but they didn't find anything more because the eagle eye he got it you know Back in Houston, Allen's family found his car parked across the street from the brass jug and they feared foul play immediately and were able to give the police several names of people that they felt like needed to be questioned. His dad posted a $5,000 reward for information concerning his son's whereabouts. He also employed a private detective. He also bugged his phone, his home and office phone, so that he could tape all of the calls that were coming in from people that wanted to collect the reward.
1: So we have our missing man, Sam DeGelia, and we have a missing man, Allen Berg, that are both mm-hmm. missing around the same time, just a few months from each other. Similar backgrounds. Yes. South Texas, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Fortunately for the DeGelia family, Sam is found six days after he goes missing, unfortunately for him, but at least he was found soon. On July the 12th, a man by the name of John Pollock, who owns some property on Farm Road 1016 southwest of McAllen, which I thought was really funny. So his last name is Pollock, right? It's spelled P-O-L-L-O-C-K. Mm-hmm. So in the big newspapers, that's how it's spelled. But in the smaller ones, it's spelled P-A-W-L-I-C-K. Like Paul.
0: Oh no. <laughs> Are you
2: kidding
1: me? Like the smaller papers. Paulic. All of his name is spelled that way. It was so funny. So he owns this property and he goes out because he fears that there's a gas leak on his property. So he goes out to the pumping house, which is less than three miles from the parking lot of the Luby's cafeteria. So he sees this body laying in his pump house. And so he obviously calls the police. The police come and they take the body and they're able to identify him by his Texas A&M graduate ring that he's wearing. And he has his billfold on him that has $50 in cash, like his wife said, his his driver's license and his credit cards. So he did have two wallets. He did. One was for business, one was for personal. Billfold.
2: I'm sorry, he had two billfolds.
1: Two billfolds, yes. So they send the body back to the corner and autopsy is performed that reveals that he had two shots to the head, which was the cause of death and it's ruled a homicide. They decide the time of death was sometime that Saturday and the bullet holes were made by a small caliber weapon, possibly a 25 caliber and two shells were found next to the body so they know that there was nothing Mm -hmm. else really that was done. And they said when the body was found, it was so decomposed that they couldn't determine what happened until the autopsy was done. Mm. And think about it. It's July. Damn summer's in Texas. Mm. Again. And it was out in the heat for six days in a Mm. shack.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So, and this was the second murder in a week in McAllen. Police are on high alert. Two days later they have a funeral for him and the DeGellia family puts together a scholarship fund for baseball scholarships at Texas a And then his father puts together a twenty five hundred dollar reward try to find whoever was connected to the slaying of his son. There's no leads. No one saw Sam go into the Lubies. No one saw anything in the parking lot of this Lubies. Lubies back
2: before closed circuit TV or everybody having cameras everywhere and everybody having camera phones. So are you even feeling the need to watch your
1: surroundings? I mean, this was the late 60s. Mm-hmm. So and they were close enough to the Mexican border where people would just drive right over. No big deal. So yeah, dangerous.
2: In September of 1968, Alan's dad raised the reward from $5,000 to $10,000 since there hadn't been any movement on it. Several weeks later, his dad began receiving phone calls from a guy in LA who at first refused to identify himself, but later said he was Bernard Lewis Dennis Weedock. I'm just going to call him Dennis from here on out, okay? He called because he was interested in collecting the reward that was posted for Alan, but he had stipulations. He would only come to Houston and meet if Nathan would pay his airfare And his expenses. His dad hired a private detective. So that detective's name was Robert Leonard. A lot of these
1: people have double first names. Don't do that to us. He was a dick.
0: Get it?
2: A private dick. (laughs) Dick. Nathan had Robert listen to the recorded calls that he had. So he said, all right, so let's call him a couple more times and let me listen in before you meet with him because I want to make sure nothing shady is going to happen. So he decides, yeah, you should meet with him. Sounds like he's legit. So in November, Dennis flies to Houston and was met by Leonard and Nathan. They went to a hotel and talked. The next day, Leonard and police detective drive to Surfside Beach. They park their car near a two mile stretch of salt cedars lining the sand dunes along the beach and and it's pouring down rain. But they're doing a systematic search of the giant cedar thicket. And they've been there long enough. It's after dark. Well, Leonard's using his flashlight. And he could tell it was once a bright patchwork quilt. So what prompted them to go down there? Remember, they flew Dennis in. Mm -hmm. They go to a hotel and they talk. They don't really say what happens. They don't say okay. what he says. But so the, he says something that causes them to he, go there. He tells them evidently where to go find him. Okay. So what do you think? Yes. Forty feet away, they found the scattered remains of a human skeleton. There was a bullet hole in the skull and a rope tied around the neck. God damn. Mm. Mm-hmm. They later did identify him through dental records because his body was also very decomposed because, I mean, he's outside in the elements. He Salty. was there from May until November. Goodness. So he was very, very decomposed. So they had to use dental, but they could tell that he'd gotten shot because I guess holes in the bones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the rope was still around his neck.
0: Yeah, and it would decompose fast because down by the ocean, it's very, very acidic
2: m- mm-hmm. and, salty. and salty. Salty. So maybe he was salty. Hmm. Oh, that's so mean. That's not nice. Can't have a victim
0: being salty. <laughs> I'm
2: sorry. Sorry, Mr. Berg. When they initially reported Alan being missing, the police assumed that he had skipped town. He had run up a very giant gambling debt and then he had been married a couple of times before, but the family knew better. So they they didn't really believe that he just took off. He wouldn't leave the love of his life that was pregnant, even though he was cheating on her so they some
0: sort of weird brass jug place i was gonna say did it he,
2: was posh okay it was a posh
1: pub i don't
0: know it was posh I, don't I was gonna
1: know. i was gonna ask if his gambling debt was racked up at that brass jug oh, Racked up
2: there at the jug place nice choice so they're guessing that someone paid to have alan killed because in, his debt and all of that okay so in November of 1968, grand jurors were called into a special session for the slaying of Allenberg. Sheriff Gladney believes that Allen was shot in Fort Bend County and the body was taken by car to Surfside. At least three witnesses were scheduled to talk with the Brazoria County Grand Jury in connection with the murder of Allen. One of them identified himself as Crawford Booth of Houston, a 37-year-old former nightclub operator who said he was now in investments. Another person that was indicted was Charles Void Harrelson. He was indicted of murder with malice and the slaying Malice, of malice, malice. <laughs> hear that a lot. There was also a sealed indictment. The identity of the person named in the sealed indictment will not be revealed until later on. Uh, The DA says, I think many people will be shocked by what is contained in this sealed indictment, and to reveal the reasons for the unusual sealed indictment would destroy the advantages that this type of indictment has. Um, When they brought the witness in, they shielded them from view when this person moved to and from the jury room. So Mm -hmm. only the jury and the people inside the courtroom could see what this person looked like. Anybody outside couldn't. Very, very, yeah.
1: That's odd. I've never heard that before.
2: This was to protect the person's life because he actually said identification of this witness could possibly cost a life. Other people that would be testifying were uh, an officer, Jim Pierce... Claude Harrelson, who is the brother of the accused man and also a polygraph operator, the victim's father, and then Crawford Booth, nightclub owner, and also is an acquaintance of Charles Harrelson. So now they're saying that this is a murder-for-hire situation. The nightclub owner isn't sure. He's saying, I'm not sure why I'm here. The only thing I can think of is just because I knew Charles. Um, he said they met when um, he owned the backstage club, but that he hadn't seen him for several months. All these clubs, the brass jug, the backstage. He denied ever having any business dealings with Harrelson or that Alan's name was ever mentioned during their conversations. Claude, who is Charles's brother, refused to give any details about the case and left the courthouse after his testimony. But the victim's dad talked freely before and after saying... The last few months have been a little piece of hell. We've been told Alan was alive, that he was dead, and that he had been seen. There were so many leads, we didn't know what to believe. The DA, um, who looked exhausted after the grand jury, returned two indictments and said, as far as we're concerned, the case has been solved. We don't expect any more indictments. And so Claude, who was one of the private investigators that The victim's dad hired said that he vowed to never take another missing person case ever again. He said facing the victim's dad outside the courtroom after the indictment's handing down, knowing that that was his brother, was too much. Can you imagine? You're a private investigator investigating a story, and the person that gets indicted for that death is your brother. That's true. Did you guys put that together yet? Wouldn't that jack you up? That would jack me up in the head so bad. Yeah, yeah. And then... Because if he doesn't solve it, it makes it look like he was stalling because he knew it was his brother. That so makes he, him
0: complicit.
2: Exactly. So prior to
1: this indictment, he had no idea that his brother was part of it. No. That's why he's like,
2: never again. First of all, it's got to suck to tell someone that you found their loved one's dead body, right?
0: Yeah, just normally.
2: Exactly. Or that you can't find him or whatever. But then to say, we found him, he's dead, and my brother is the one that's being indicted for the Prime mother- murder. Prime murder. That was, that was a twist I did not expect.
1: Huh.
2: Claude said the reason he never suspected his brother was connected with the case was he received an anonymous telephone threat from a man with a muffled voice who threatened to stick a shotgun in his face and pull the trigger if he didn't lay off. And I'm guessing he's assuming that his brother wouldn't do that to him. So mm. that's why he didn't expect that it would be his brother. Um, he said he hadn't seen his brother in 10 years. So uh, early theories are that the murder was connected with heavy gambling debts. His dad says that his son may have been killed after he passed a bad tip to mafia gamblers in New Orleans. They gave The the tip they gave to the mafia was that one of the basketball games that was on was fixed. His son was like, no, go ahead and, and bet on it. But that lost the guy like 109 grand. Oh, jeez. That's a lot of cheddar.
0: Yeah, especially back then, too.
2: Yeah, yeah, because this was in 68. So yeah. what would that be? A double, at least?
0: At least. At the very least, like so a quarter million. That's
2: a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't kill somebody over that amount, but...
0: I mean, I'd kill like three people.
2: <laughs> Maybe a roach <laughs> or a bug. <laughs> so now I know who our mystery witness is.
1: Who is it? Tell me, tell me.
2: It's a female. Her name is Sandra Sue Attaway. She was indicted on November 15th. On a, church, on a charge, on a charge. of murder. Church. <laughs> church? Because murder's right after it. So I was going to say churder. <laughs> she was charged with murder. So we're going to start calling that churder in mm-hmm. um, Alan's death. The DA said she was free on bond and that she was the girlfriend of Charles. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think Sandra let them know that Charles was contracted to kill Alan. And if, Charles knew that she was testifying against him. Obviously, he would have probably killed her. So that's why they kept her so protected. And she's also the woman who Alan was going to meet at the Brass Jug Club.
1: Hooker, hooker. Girl. Just a hoe,
2: All around. So uh, she's out on bond and they really don't know where Charles is. On November 19th. So Charles hasn't been arrested? mm -mm, They just indicted him. They haven't arrested him yet. Oh, hmm So they are searching nationwide for him. They put out a fugitive warrant. They finally find him the next day at his home in Atlanta uh, by three Texas officers and Atlanta police.
1: Did they not look at the home the first day?
2: <laughs> in Atlanta? They tried to find him. They had a really hard time. They were on his trail. They basically followed. It was just the way it sounded. They found him at home.
0: found him at home he had a smoking pipe he was at home
2: (laughs) he was in front of the fireplace he wasn't there like right away so from the time they knew that they were going to go look for him until they found him he wasn't just at home there was like they had to follow him all around to like Louisiana and all these different places and they would it's kind of like a movie where they would show up and they'd be like oh he just left Mm. so they went to all these different bars basically and then they finally found him and at home Where he had other family members. Oh, and they said he did have one request when they captured him. What do you think he wanted? Whiskey. No, that's a good guess though. His comb. His comb? He wanted his comb.
0: Huh. All right. (laughs) Interesting, right? This guy.
2: They said that Harrelson took Allen's $400 watch from his wrist and presented it to the man who hired him as proof of the murder. A week later, Charles enters a plea of not guilty and says, I am innocent. I didn't do it. And so the DA is going to ask for the death penalty because he is sure that this man was hired and paid to kill Allen Burke. So in
1: December of 1968, over in Hidalgo County, where... Mr. Degelia was so. Murdered. This is
2: like a month later.
1: The DA, McKinnis, reveals that there that they have two people in custody for the murder of Sam Degelia. And the first person is Pete Thomas Scamardo. He was a former business partner of the victim. Second in custody is Charles Harrelson. Uh oh. He states he's under already under one indictment in his hometown for killing a Houston carpet firm owner, Allen Berg. Yep, that's true. They have another person that's in custody, but they haven't charged him with anything. His name is Jerry Watkins. They're still questioning him. So they have two for sure that they believe Mm -hmm. is responsible for the murder and then a third possible so Jerry Watkins was also being held in the county jail with them and Harrelson was being held under tight security in a Brazoria county jail mm-hmm. in Angleton and the indictment against the trio was held secret until the third man was taken by Texas Rangers so until they, they got to
2: tip them off all three yeah. of them
1: they didn't there was nothing in the paper which I mean everything happened he was found all that happened and then there was like crickets for months nothing Absolutely nothing. Like, am I it? typing
2: the right dates? What's yeah, I'm like,
1: what's going on? <laughs> like, yes, like, I kn- they just kept saying that, you know, this man had been killed and they were waiting and it was, so I was kind of frustrated. But then in December, they found them. Indictment charges against Harrelson and Watkins stating that they acted together on or about July
0: 6th. 6th?
1: On or about July 6th to what? commit murder with malice. Malice, malice,
0: malice. That's one sorry second, so does. <laughs>
1: The indictment against Scamardo alleges he promised Charles Harrelson $2,000, which in today's world would be 14400 roughly, to kill so Sam. So way more than double. Yeah. Yeah, it's like seven times. Damn. I was about to say
0: the inflation on that was like, yeah, about seven to eight times. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ.
1: So they're saying that Scamardo alleged that he promised Harrelson two thousand dollars to kill sam but they didn't really know what the motive was at this time which usually motives always money, money. drugs or sex right those are usually the three motives mm-hmm. and they weren't sure which of those three were causing that then defense attorney percy foreman who i believe should win the salty award for this episode because he is isn't a he salty bitch. he's kind of <laughs> like racehorse
2: haynes isn't he
1: no he's not he's not he's
2: not very good <laughs> oh no. he's not very good okay Maybe, um, is that why he's salty? Because he's not a very good attorney.
1: And so he like throws tantrums because he's mad. <laughs> like I imagine like a five year old in a courtroom. Like, well, fine, and like stomps away. Like that's how he is. So he comes forward and he's like, I just want to let everybody know that I'm I'm gonna represent Charles Harrelson.
2: So I'm that's not my afraid. cousin Vinny. <laughs> I'm not afraid.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna do what's right for him. He, this is an injustice, and I'm I'm gonna be there for him. So. Pete Scamardo is released on a $50,000 bond and his attorney is Thomas Sharp. He went to the courthouse and got a lower bond for him so that he could get out of jail. So he gets there and he's telling the judge, you know, I want to I want to get my guy out. You know, he wants to be seen. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm looking at the records and we don't have a Pete Scamardo in jail. He's like, that's, you're absolutely wrong. I know this is a jail that he's in. Come to find out before they could even lower his bond all of Pete's friends and family got the money together and got him out so he wasn't he really wasn't so there so he really wasn't there <laughs> and so again so Thomas Sharp is a court appointed attorney so he's again you know we know they aren't always the best he was so mad at the judge he was like, "Check your records. I don't know who does your bookkeeping, but they're wrong." How Hard do motherfucker. You lose-
0: I know he's in here. What you trying to hide him Let me for? Go no.
1: look. He was like, trying to cause ruckus outside of the courtroom <laughs> by saying, "They lose prisoners here. They lose prisoners, and they didn't lose him." He posted bail.
2: Wait, was this Thomas Sharp or Thomas Sharp.
1: Thomas Sharp. So January 9th of 1969, added to the indictment for Harrelson is a charge of theft by false pretense. He's Uh. accused of using an alias to buy a $1,600 yellow gold watch and a man's diamond ring valued at $1,300 on credit last September at a Houston jewelry store.
2: Uh-oh. So they
1: find this out and they just add that to the list of charges. Mm-hmm. So sure when he's in there. when Percy goes to the jail to tell him, "Hey, now we got to do this." He basically tells him, "Well, I'm going to get off with these last two things. So if I have to serve maybe I'll get time served by the time all these trials are finished. So I'm not really worried about it." And Percy's like, "You should be worried about it because this is not only charges against you, this is your reputation." He's like,
2: "Yeah, I'm not worried. I don't, I don't care about my <laughs> reputation." I have a hitman reputation. Like I don't he give just a
1: shit about anything. And he's at this time, which this is January of 69, he has not been tried for either murder yet. No. Nope. And he already is like I'm not worried. Like That's how do you not be worried? Shit. You have two murders on you. Hey, and baby, you're not you already
0: worried. He checked out. He's like, eh, fuck it." But
1: he's he's acting like he's not going to get in trouble for it. Like, yeah, it's on me, but I'm not worried about it. I'm going to get off free.
2: Maybe he thinks maybe he works for the FBI or the FBI or the government and he thinks they're just going to protect him. Or maybe he's just dumb.
1: On top of the double theft charges that he has in February, another charge goes on him. And it is for impersonating a Stephen Stoutenborough for writing a worthless check of $373.28 to National Airlines using the name to buy a ticket in July of the year before when he flew from Houston to McAllen. Which Hmm. in McAllen in July is where... And when Sam died. Yep. So that is now on him. And he was leaving Houston because he had just killed Alan and he needed to get the F out. That's right. Sneaky, sneaky. So five months later, pre-trial starts. And I will tell you, this trial dragged ass. (laughs) This trial went on. It took forever to get started. It took over six months to get started. And then it went on for 77 days. Wow. And so what took so long? You'll tell me. I'll let you know, girl. All right, girl. So they start the pretrial on July 15th of 1969. And the DA, Oscar McKinnis stated the defense attorneys are filing three motions. They want the indictments to be quashed, which I kept thinking they were missing the S.
2: No, I think it's a legal term. because When I was reading on- the
1: thing, I'm like, how do all these keep missing the S? <laughs> yeah, I was wrong. It was supposed to be quashed. So they wanted to quash the indictments. They wanted certain evidence to be suppressed and they were asking the prosecution to present evidence to the defense because they felt some of the evidence that the prosecution had they weren't sharing. So they were going to file these three motions in the pretrial. So Scamardo's attorney, Mr. Sharp, Mm -hmm. he was stating that the ballistics reports were mismatched. He stated that he doesn't think he received all the ballistic reports on the murder weapon and the existing reports did not prove the fatal bullet was fired from the gun in question. So Percy Foreman stands forward and says, (laughs) I will explain this further. He says, and I quote, I am satisfied that I have all the ballistic reports The DA knows about. I am not satisfied that there might not still be some tests we don't have. If you're going to be ambushed, we'd like to be ambushed from the front. (laughs) So Sharps steps back in and tried to make the DA, Oscar McInnes, tell the court how Scamardo allegedly made a deal with Harrelson and Watkins to kill DeGelia. The DA objected on the grounds the request was immaterial and the judge upheld the objection. Sharp presented motions proposing any evidence gathered by electronic eavesdropping or wiretapping be suppressed. So apparently when they were looking for the three but they hadn't talked about the first two that were arrested because they were looking for Mm -hmm. Harrelson. They had wiretapped and put bugs in the other two's houses. And so they had incriminating evidence against them. They probably didn't do it legally and they couldn't use it. Exactly. It was
0: inadmissible.
1: He also requested that Scamardo not be forced to sign any petitions or probation in front of the jury because then they would feel that he was guilty. Which at first when I read this, I was confused. I was like, honey, can you please explain this to me? And he was like... If he signs it, he's admitting his guilt. And so Sharp and Foreman both agreed that they did not want either one of their clients to sign anything, even for a plea bargain or to lower their sentence, because then they're saying that they did it, and in the eyes of the jury, they're guilty. So it wouldn't look good. Foreman stated, such documents might preclude innocence in the eyes of the Mm -hmm. jurors. And the judge overruled both motions, and DA McInnes is seeking the death penalty for both of them. But no trial had been set yet. So November... Interesting thing happens. The judge Tom Hartley, who has followed this case since February for the last 9 months, he studied it, he's agreed, he's done motions. He dies in his house. Oh shit. At 67. So now they have to delay the trial because they, they have to get judge. a new judge and to get um, brought up to speed. They have to get that Tupperware out, right? <sighs> Figure out what judge is going to do
2: it. That's so they got to find a hat. new judge,
1: and that judge has to get familiar with the case, have, make sure they don't have any problems with it before. So now the trial is going to be delayed even more than it already has.
2: So in January... So there was nothing shady with a judge dying? It was no, just he died of natural. natural causes. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: So in January of 1970, Judge J.R. Alamia is granted the one to take over the case. He studied it for the last two months, and they've agreed that he's going to be the one to handle this trial. He granted a defense motion to suppress testimony concerning whether or not Scamardo took a lie detector test since they're inadmissible. And he felt that even if you say that he took one without showing the results, is going to give a question to the jury. Yeah. Or they may assume that he was guilty. Right. Or they, or they may say, well, they're saying it because he passed it Mm -hmm. or how the demeanor that they say, oh, he took a lie detector test Mm -hmm. or he took a lie detector test. You know, both of those sound, one sounds incriminating, one doesn't. So the judge just said, nobody talks about it. It doesn't matter that they were given. We're not going to talk about it at all. And attorney Sharp told the court that he had eight motions to bring before the judge and two documents. He stated Judge Hartley had overruled a motion to quash the murder charge, and he argued that the original indictment of Scamardo as an accomplice would leave his client with no sustainable plea of double jeopardy. So if we fast forward to February, and the trial finally begins. So now we're at the end of February. It starts on February 20th of 1970. So attorney Percy Foreman stands before the jury. (laughs) And he had, apparent at this point in his career, he feels very good about himself. He had defended over 300 people accused of murder, and he only lost one to the electric chair. So Ooh. he's got a very big head about him. He thinks he's very good. And, Pretty good stats, though. Yeah.
0: Numbers so he, don't lie.
1: He goes in front of the jury in opening statements, and he says, I will prove that 20 to 30 people had a reasonable right to kill Sam Delgelia. I have at least 20 hypothetical possibilities of assassination of Sam DeGelia by people who don't even know Peter Thomas Scamardo. One theory was the killing was engineered by a Peter Trentacost, DeGelia's cousin. Hmm. Trentacost and DeGelia's wife Virginia were having an affair at the time of his death. Then Percy goes on to say that there was also a married man in Louisiana who may have threatened to kill DeGelia because he may have been having an affair with the Louisiana man's wife. However, he had no proof of either affair. So he's telling these to the jury like he has proof. And all they are, are theories. So it's just making shit it's up Just for the stories. sake of
2: slandering.
1: Yes, absolutely. And can you imagine, like, I the wife so of the victim is sitting there, and she's like, you motherfucker, you said I did what? <laughs> exactly. I'm going to kill you. And then, wait a second, my husband was having an affair? You know, like, mm. there's all kinds of fighting going on in the courtroom.
0: <laughs> a web of lies.
1: So the defense attorney... Percy Foreman, He his main angle with Miss Degelia is that her and Trintacos, which is the cousin, he's stating that they, had, they were having an affair. Mm-hmm. During Percy's opening statements, Miss Degelia was on the witness stand. So it's not like she was off somewhere. She was sitting there in front of him, listening to him, everything he's saying right in front of her that she supposedly was having an affair or somebody was having an affair with her husband. So she breaks down while he's talking. She's just like the judge has to bang his gavel a couple of times to get order in the court because she's
2: losing her mind. So she's not just crying. She's like hysterical. Yeah,
1: she's hysterical. So Percy starts asking her about her relationship with Peter Trentacost, which is Sam's cousin. And she explained that he would come over to the house and spend the night when her husband was away so she would not be alone at the request of Sam. They had four children. Mm -hmm. They were all very close in age. And when he would go out of town, a lot of times for weeks at a time, he did not want her to be by herself. And they had a maid or a nanny and she would help out with the kids, but still a man in the house just made him feel better. So at his request, he would go and stay while he was gone. And sometimes at night they would stay up late, listen to music. They're both young. His wife was 29 and the cousin was 25. So it's not like they were, you know... So it was his idea that his cousin be there to protect his wife. Right. I mean, I can see how it's a little shame they're staying up mm-hmm. late. They, sometimes they said they would drink a couple of drinks and listen to records and hang out. And, of course, he stayed the night because he was there while um, Sam was gone. So they call Mrs. Aline Norfleet to the stand and that is the maid. And they mainly bring her to the stand because... She was caring for the kids during the time that Sam had left to go meet the grain buyer. So they're kind of trying to figure out the chain of events. Mm-hmm. So they ask her, you know, what do you do? She said, I'm, I'm their nanny. I've been their maid sin- and nanny since they got married. You know, he's always had money. So she's never had to clean, cook, or do any of that stuff. I've done all that. She's got to do all the fun stuff. So that's what her main job was. And she worked for them during the time of the murder and she did a, she did confirm that Trentacost did spend a lot of time at the home Percy asked if it was mainly at night and she said yes but he would also come over at lunchtime as well and that Mrs. Norfleet is the one that took the call that led Sam to his death which she said she has a lot of guilt for I'm sure. Like she's told him, I wonder what happened if I'd never answered the phone or if I had taken a message, if he'd
2: still be here. Well, I'm sure because it wasn't like some random situation. And I don't know if
1: I'm saying the last name right. I hope I am, but I may not be because she said that. One thing that stuck out to her is that whenever the person called, the caller pronounced the name properly, and she said that wasn't common. Most people didn't say the name right, so when they asked for Sam Degelia and said it correctly, she was like, well, it has to be a friend of his or someone he knows, because Mm -hmm. if it was a stranger... They wouldn't have said his name right. Yeah. So she said she went down to the pool and told him that so-and-so, that somebody was on the phone. And after the phone call, he went and changed clothes and went to meet this this man that was wanting to buy grain. So Percy starts probing her about an affair between Mrs. DeGelia and Trentacost. And she's saying, I don't know of any affair. I never saw them be inappropriate with each other. They were always just hanging out. It didn't look that way. And he said, okay, well, what about having an affair with a Louisiana woman? And she's like, I don't know anything about that. And Miss Tegelia said the same thing. I don't know anything about that. I don't know anything about my husband having an affair on me. That's news to me.
2: I'm sure the maid wouldn't ride him out anyway, but the wife probably really didn't know.
1: So because Percy is really throwing this affair in her face, she starts to get very upset again. And so the judge... Alamia pounds his gavel several times to regain composure of the court again. The judge gets very mad and he basically tells Foreman, Are these just allegations? Can you prove any of these theories? So Foreman gets mad and says, And I quote, I don't have to prove anything. I didn't say I was going to prove it. I it's said not I like was- somebody's on trial. It's
2: not like it's my job.
1: <laughs> I said I was going to prove a reasonable hypothesis. Oh, okay. If I said I was going to prove someone killed someone, I'd be stupid as a lawyer. <laughs> wow. Who said he'd prove Dr. Sam Shepard killed his wife, for example. And that's not what I presented. Okay, wow. Well, that guy is screwed. <laughs> so then he starts inquiring why Mystic Elias sold their home and moved to Austin three months after the death. And I wouldn't want to
2: live in the house where my husband, where I live with him and he's well, dead. Well, and the
1: reason why that is is because, or the, the reason why he keeps pushing is because Trenticost lives in Austin
2: oh so
1: he's like probing her like did you move to austin to be with him and so she, he asked her so you you moved out of your house she said yeah it was about three months he's like actually i'll correct you it was 30 days oh it was only 30 days that's what he says but again he has no proof and it sounds like he makes it up and he said it seems that now you live less than a mile from trintacost so did you conspire with him to have your husband killed so y'all could be together and she denies it. And she said, I would have, I would never want my husband dead. I loved him. He was, you know, my everything.
2: Even so, though she was screwing his cousin?
1: No. I don't think so. <laughs> so Foreman told the court that. It's
2: just a theory. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So Foreman told the court that Trentacost shared in the $100,000 life insurance policy that was left for the family after Sam died. And Foreman stated, a frequency and duration of the time that they spent together increased after he became single. And he said, and I quote, From that summer in 1967 until this fine hour, Pete Trentacost hasn't dated a single girl except you, has he? Mm. And of course she denies. And she said, I believe he was dating a girl from Waco for a while. So, hmm. Percy Vorman asked if she loved him and is she going to marry him, which he, she said no. And so she, he asked her, which I don't really think it's any of his business, but he asked her, so what did you do with the life insurance money? And she said, well, if you must know, my husband had debts. So 50000 of it went straight to a bank to well, pay off like his I debts. I paid
0: the bills. That's my money.
1: I will to tell you. With the other fifty, I separated into five $10,000 cashier's checks Four of them I put in funds for my kids, and one I put for me, because it was my husband. And he's like, that sounds like a great plan, but
2: I don't believe you. Well, then why do you, why ask? I know, that's what I was like, why are you asking her then? (laughs) I blew it on hookers and blow.
0: (laughs) And the rest I wasted.
1: Well, and all that stuff could have been verified, but it doesn't go with his theory, Mm -hmm. you see. Mm. A couple of days go by, there was 89 witnesses that were called. Damn. So the next one to take the stand that's important is Jerry Watkins. He was the second man to be arrested, but the third man in this trio to do with Sam Degelia, And he has accused Charles Harrelson of being the trigger man in the murder for higher slaying. So he testified that Pete Scamardo had hired Harrelson to kill DeGellia so that Scamardo could collect a $50,000 double indemnity insurance policy. Watkins was first charged as an accomplice, which was later dropped because he said Harrelson made the admission to him in Houston seven or eight days after the murder of what he had done. Harrelson told Watkins, It's a shame when your best friend has you killed for your insurance and then he's a pallbearer at your funeral. So Pete Scamardo was a pallbearer at Sam DeGellia's funeral. That's fucked up. Here he was, did a murder for hire, and was the reason why he's dead. And you're gonna carry him in his casket. Gotta
2: keep up the front, man. That's low. That's very low. That's some y'all have shit. life insurance policies. I don't. I do, but it's through my job. So. I don't believe in them.
0: Put me out with the trash.
1: So, Watkins stated Scamardo needed money and paid him $5,000 to kill DeGelia for the insurance money. Watkins stated that when Harrelson drew his gun to DeGelia, DeGelia stated to Harrelson, My God, my God, what's the matter? How much do you want?
0: Mm. Case file 12 The Texas Hitman to be continued.